I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. It was only a matter of time before we turned our attention to low-volume British sports car manufacturers because there's just so much to discuss. Um, Andrew, but before we get onto that, there are a couple of quite big topical news stories that we want to cover off first. Um, so tell me what you think of that pretty remarkable-looking Bugatti Bolide. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a bit Scrooge-like over this. I, What's it for? I mean, it seems to me that what they have done is create a car which doesn't have to subscribe to any rules at all, which is a tiny bit quicker, uh, on in theory at least, around Le Mans than one which has to subscribe to a rule book three feet thick. Um, and, I, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, what I suspect it's for, and I may be completely wrong on this, I don't have any inside track in this talk. I suspect they will make some and they'll have it like, you know, the Ferrari FXX programme and they'll wheel them out for their punters uh, specified track days and people can get to see what doing naught to 250 miles an hour in 12 seconds feels like pretty uncomfortable I would think but um, you know I, I suppose if I say that people might say aha yes but you, you know you, you you went mad over the 919 Evo which is another car which doesn't have to um, subscribe to anyone but at least that was derived from a car that did uh, to the extent that it still had a two-liter four-cylinder engine in it, not an eight-liter sixteen-cylinder engine in it, and so to me that is, you know, that is a bit more legitimate. And also, you know, it comes from a company whose recent track record in driving things fast around tracks is 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 unimpeachable. Whereas, you know, Bugatti, you know, Bugatti as a company has not raced successfully. It has raced, but not successfully since before the war. So, I I, I don't know what it is, and I don't know what it's for. What about you? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, what is it for? They've said <clears throat> that at the moment it's a fully functional concept car, so it, it apparently does run. But yeah, those lap times—they're in—they're modelled, aren't they? They're in theory. They um, are. It, it, it has run. You know, there's footage of it. Well, there's not much. There's a few seconds of it going around Paul Ricard. Um, so it def- definitely does work. Yeah. Um, uh, Perhaps when they, if they ever get around to actually doing those lap records, we'll be able to take it a bit more seriously. I think um, just so. To, just to give you some numbers, um, so the, the lap record at Le Mans is held by Kamui Kobayashi in the Toyota Hybrid. Um, in qualifying in 2017, he did a 3.14, 3 minutes 14. Um, and Bugatti has plugged a load of data into a computer, presumably, and it spat out a number that says that it's 
eight seconds faster, the bullied, eight seconds faster than that um, Kobayashi lap time, which is, you know, what does that even mean? Do well, OK, imagine you went to Toyota uh, and said, OK, uh, take your whatever it is to TSO5A, your LMP1 hybrid, um, and we're going to throw away the rules and yeah, do, do to that car what Porsche did to the 919. I mean, they wouldn't find eight seconds. They'd find 20, 30. I mean, they would find armfuls of time out of it. Um, so I don't see what point Bugatti is trying to prove um, beyond, I guess, it being a publicity. And I may be being terribly un- un- unfair and unkind here. But do you not think we're just getting to the stage now? And I'm sure we'll talk about the, how do you pronounce it, Tuatara? Um, yeah, we'll come to it yeah yeah and the you know the sheer on that they did last year you know these 300 mile an hour cars i just pfft, it's I, it strange just, isn't it it just turns me off I, 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 well, I think i do know why i think i think i know why because you know uh, having been lucky enough to drive at 200 a few times it's just enough i mean all you're doing going beyond that is grabbing headlines i don't think you're proving anything to anyone because you know uh, not even on a racetrack are you ever going to get to those sorts of speeds because the straights aren't long enough. So unless you go and hire Air Alessian um, or a bit of Nevada Desert, these are meaningless numbers. They have no relevance. So I, I, I find myself getting turned off by the whole thing, I'm afraid. So what's the difference for you between um, the Bugatti Bolide and Aston Martin Valkyrie? Okay, so there's some pretty impressive engineering going on with both. Um, staggering amount of money should the bullied ever be sold it's inevitably going to cost multiple millions yeah um, so why do you why, why do you sort of foam at the mouth about one and just and have no interest in the other uh because i mean how many reasons do you want uh firstly you know the valkyrie is a road car so it has a it has an immediate relevance and resonance there um you know obviously it has you know the mark of adrian newey on it um we believe it is going to be you know, genuinely expand the envelope of road car, but it's going to do stuff that road cars have never done before. Um, and that is somebody who, you know, I, I appreciate that what it can do is largely academic because none of us will be able to afford us. You know, most of us will never get to drive one or even sit in one or probably even see one. But it, there is an interest and a relevance and a legitimacy to a car with that heritage, with that function um, that something like the Bolid, which has just been conjured up out of nowhere with no pretense to make it road legal, um, no attempt to make it subscribe to any sets of rules. It's just, it seems to be Bugatti just going, we're going to build a really fast car. And of course, if you if you want to do that and you don't have to, you know, homologate it um, and you don't have to race it, then, you know, you could do it because it's just a question of numbers and money. Um, but something like, um, the Valkyrie, which you know people have to be able to drive down a public road. Um, you know, I, I I have a little bit of insight into that project, and I know just how difficult it has been. Uh, and look at you know how late the Mercedes one, as when I have to call it, um, the old project one is. You know, these are you know getting those cars. You know, just through homologation, just getting them you know, legal for the road is such a process. But I bet that when they you know they come out, they will actually be. I mean, if not sort of, you know, usable in a conventional sense, they will certainly be cars that you can get in and, and drive on the road. And, you know, as I say, I think those sorts of cars to me are massively more imp- impressive technical accomplishments than a bunch of people just sitting there and go, right, we're going to make something really fast. <laughs> OK, right. I've got two points to make on the Bugatti. Um, first one's a question. Do you 
And I, I don't mean to put you on the spot here. Um, I do. Do you, do you know what bolide means in French? <sighs> la, 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 la. Uh, do I know what bolide... Uh, okay, <laughs> thank you for this. Um, your, the, the short answer to your question is no, I don't, but I did. Is a, isn't a bolide a... I mean, they used to call sort of 50s racing cars bolides. Are they not just sort of lightweight, open, very sporty things? It's literally racing car. Oh, Okay. Is that that literally is it? Okay, that's that's literally it. Yeah, racing car in French, and I just you know maybe I'm being a bit hopeful, but perhaps that's a, a clue. You know, if if there is some intention to actually go racing with this or something like it, then all of a sudden this whole bullied project has credibility. Um, but where but would you race it? In, 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 in what formula would you race it? Le Mans hypercars. Well, then you have to make grid, you know, then they have to make, uh, what is it, 25 road cars in the first year and 100 in the second year. And might that be on their minds? I'd, I'd be surprised if it is. However, all I'm saying is if they went racing with it at Le Mans and built however they need to for homologation purposes, yeah. then I think it's a great project. You know, it, all of a sudden it has a credibility and a purpose. If they do that, and I don't think they will, but if they do that, I will come back on this podcast and apologise formally to them because I couldn't agree with you more. If they do that, and this is just a sort of backdoor into doing, you know, another road car which breaks down the boundaries again, then absolutely, I I, I, I agree. That would be um, a very, very interesting, wildly more interesting proposition than this uh, bullied thing. Okay. So the other thing I want to say is, I've, I've dug out a few numbers. Um, the Bolide's brake calipers weigh 2.4 kilograms apiece. The centre lock forged aluminium wheels um, weigh 7.4 kilograms at the front, 8.4 at the rear. I think the push rod is 100 grams. Point being, this is Bugatti talking about lightweight engineering. Yeah. And it hasn't done that with the, Sha- the, the Veyron and the Chiron. No, um, not at all. And maybe, just maybe, this is the start of Bugatti really taking lightweighting seriously and deciding that actually a, a two-ton car perhaps isn't the right approach and, uh, you know, stripping some weight out of these things might make all the difference. Oh, I, do so, I do so hope so. I do. I, I absolutely hope so. But, you know, to be honest, if you're going to strip weight out of a Bugatti, the first thing, you, I mean, you know, you know that engine, that eight-litre engine, it weighs 450 kilograms. You know, there are entire cars that weigh less than that. So if you're really going to get serious about light, light waiting, the first thing you do is you, is, you, is you get rid of that. But, you know, again, I know that I'm sounding, you know, particularly uncharitable about this. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe you just caught me on a bad day. But, um, you know, if, if you are right, um, and this is, you know, a signal to the way they're going to go in the future, you know, all power to them. That makes me really, really happy. I've always said you know, when the Veyron came out in whenever it was, 2005, I think, um, and it was a two-ton car with a thousand horsepower. I can remember just saying at the time, if it was instead of weighing two thousand kilos and having a thousand horsepower, it had weighed fifteen hundred kilos and had seven hundred and fifty horsepower. It would have had exactly the same power to weight ratio, but as a thing to drive, it would have been totally transformed. Um, and you know, if fifteen years on, um, you know, they're starting to think that way too. Great news. We shall see. Right, there's, there's a, it is fun, isn't it, when there's a, a controversy in our little corner of the world. Oh, I know um, where we're going. It's just quite amusing to watch it unfold, isn't it? Particularly when you don't have a vested interest and you just yeah. want to see the drama play out. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave it to you to uh, pronounce the car's name, the SSC. SSC, there you go, you did it very nicely. <laughs> 
you cheat. Okay, Tuatara or something. Tuatara. Tuatara. I've never heard it called that before, but maybe you're right. I'm not the bloke who can't pronounce Murcielaga or Murcielago, so who knows. That thing. Yes, apparently, apparently the name is Maori, so yeah. Okay. It's not just a fabrication. Okay. So anyway, should we should we briefly give some background? So the SSC um, announced or it claimed last week, wasn't it, that um, its car had broken the production car top speed record, um, and they released some footage of it driving very quickly along that road in Nevada, the same one that Koenigsegg used in 2017, I think it was. Um, and the, the SSC hit a top speed of 331 miles per hour. And it did a two-way average of 316, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, I mean, those are staggering numbers. Staggering numbers. G- given that, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the the Veyron climbing up to 250 um, after however many years after the McLaren F1 did 240, you know, that was an incremental step over yeah. 15 years or something, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and now we've got, so apparently, this American supercar hitting a top speed of 331. Although, um, it's, it was pointed out by, I think really it was Shmi, wasn't it, who gave the, this controversy the, the momentum it's got. He, he released a video pointing out that there are inconsistencies in the footage. Correct. Um, and it's rumbled along from there, hasn't it? So SSC then uh, sort of punched back saying, actually, the, the Austrian firm, a telemetry and timing firm, uh, Devatron, had verified the speed. Um, but then this firm came back and said, uh, actually, we haven't, um, yeah. and, which and sort we, of we flames. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're not, we're not, they're not verified. They weren't even there. Um, yeah. And then um, SSC came out and admitted that um, the footage that they released was, and I quote, substantially inaccurate. Yeah. But they still stand by it, don't they? Um and I think they've now said that they have sent off the the correct data file, which will prove to you, me, the timing people, and you know Guinness World Records that what they did was um, as they said. Um, and I don't know. I'm not going to cast any aspersions one way or the other because I genuinely don't know. I think all I would say is that you know if you're going to do something like that, for goodness' sake, you know, release the right clip or make sure you got your ducks in a row first because. You know, to get a car to do that, and, you know, I think driving road cars at over 300 miles an hour is one of the more pointless exercises, but nevertheless, it's impressive. Mm. And if you're going to go to all that effort to design a car that is that powerful and that slippery, yet sufficiently stable that, um, you know, a bloke can get in it and drive it at those sort of speeds, don't undermine the credibility of the whole thing by just, you know, messing up something as as simple as that um because you know i kind of think that people will always think from now on you know no smoke without fire and you know it's it's going to be you know and and the sadness is let's say that it was absolutely legitimate and just an honest innocent mistake was made the whole thing's tainted isn't it Mm, yeah it is actually yeah i mean even even if the record stands and yeah and it's theirs for a few years people will always say is it though? Did you know? Yeah. It was, was it somehow? Whatever. Um, the thing, really, they should have sought independent verification long before even making the claim. Um, so that they've always got something rigorous to, to point to. If there's any doubt, this, you know, they'd be able to say, well, actually, Guinness or whoever 
have, have, have verified this. They should have. They should have a picture of them standing there with a bloke from Guinness. I mean, why I, doesn't that happen? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've, I, I've, uh, I've, I've, I've broken a, a Guinness record or two in my time, and and there's, you know, and, and what you do is you get the bloke from or the or the ladies in the most recent time to stand there with you doing the grip and grin with the certificate and you know and the photograph of that and that's all the validation you ever need one photograph um and people can pour over data lines for the rest of eternity but you know ultimately you've done it um and to not have set that up you know and the problem is is as i say it could be an mistake, but people will say well why didn't they do that it just seems so basic doesn't it such a simple thing to make sure you know if you're going to go and break a record for goodness sake make sure that you can prove that you have because otherwise people do you remember you probably don't because you in fact you were definitely because you weren't even born the budweiser rocket do you remember that <laughs> do, you, no. do you know what that was no okay, the, Bud, the budweiser rocket was a thing driven by a stuntman called stan barrett very very brave man it was basically a sidewinder missile literally on wheels which in 1979 went across Edwards Air Force Base, and they claimed to have broken the sound barrier long before Andy Green and Richard Noble did, um, you know, like 18 years before. Um, but they only did it in one direction, and the people who were meant to be doing the timing, you know, NASA who look after that, but, you know, was cast doubts on it and that sort of thing. And, you know, although there are, you know, there are lots of people who will swear blind, um, you know, that they did break the sound barrier. And there's no question at all, the thing went unbelievably fast. And Stan Barrett is a very, very brave man. Nobody knows. Because the data at the end of the day didn't support the, the suggested facts. And so, you know, that whole thing has, you know, it was always the sort of, you know, did it, didn't it? And if, you, if you're not sure, then effectively it didn't because you can't say that it did. Yeah, it's not enough, is it, just to upload a video to YouTube saying, look, we did this. And it's good that there's been scrutiny because it's really important because if you're making a claim like this, you need to be held to account. Um, actually, I, I see a parallel with Nürburgring lap times um, because... <sighs> I think there is a bit more rigor applied to these now, but in the past we'd just get a bit of footage from a manufacturer. It'd be you'd see the full onboard lap, but you wouldn't know what the car was really. You wouldn't know what tyres it was on, not really. Um, and I think there have been instances where these claims have been made, and actually the car's been on different tyres to that which your showroom model will be delivered on. Yeah, and, and also and I'm deliberately not going to name any names now. But if you were a car manufacturer with a very, very good relationship with a tyre manufacturer and you went to that tyre manufacturer and said, could you make me some tyres which look exactly the same as the tyres that we usually use? But last 13 miles. But, but will last 13.1 miles. <laughs> um, but you just would, wouldn't you? Now, I'm not, I have no reason to suspect that has happened. I'm not saying for a moment that it has happened, let alone you know, any manufacturer who might have got involved with that. But it's the sort of thing that could happen and no one would ever know. Mm. Do you know what? People have been trying to go very, very fast in a straight line with cars. People have been trying to go very quickly around laps with cars for more than 100 years. Okay, And it's in, in that time, it's called, being called motorsport. And motorsport comes with very clear, strict regulations there for all to see. And it comes with independent timekeepers. And it always has done. And these top speed attempts and Nürburgring lap times, I, they are a form of motorsport. And then the same rigor needs to be applied because otherwise they're left open to, you know, well, doubt. Doubt can be cast on any claim as it has been here. But also, you know, take it to the nth degree and an unscrupulous company could come along 
release some doctored footage and claim that it's broken a record that it hasn't got anywhere near. You know, no, it's, it's it's like you know a tennis player being allowed to referee his own match. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's you know when you know Andy Green went across Black Raw Desert whatever it was seven hundred and sixty nine miles an hour and nice you know it, it wasn't it wasn't Thrust SSC's team who came up with the with the speeds um, it was whoever it was the United States Auto Racing Club dude or whatever uh, you know it was a, a completely independent um, you know highly regarded timing body and so yeah I don't know it is strange <laughs> isn't it. Yeah, and until that that rigor is applied, I just there isn't much credibility in these claims, is there? So, I don't know. This this SSC one will rumble on. We're recording this on a Friday, the Friday before it goes out on a Monday. So over the weekend, who knows? Perhaps there'll be further developments. But as it stands, I mean, there there is a bit of clarification that SSC need to do because at the moment, who the hell knows? Exactly. Okay, right. Well, we're not really supposed to be talking about that stuff in this podcast because, well, frankly, we're trying to tackle British sports cars. We're talking about the low volume ones. Um, and it's like measuring a coastline, isn't it? The longer you, the, the sort of more you look, the more intricate and longer it becomes, and there's more and more stuff to talk about. So we're, I think we're barely going to scratch the surface and we'll have to revisit again, it again at some point. Um, and we're we're intentionally not talking about Lotus in this episode because that's, that's a podcast a, in itself, isn't it? Yeah, in its own right, and we'll we'll Probably come to that three. at some point. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, where, how do you want to get us started on low volume British sports car manufacturers? Well, I mean, the one thing that I have never well, one thing I do understand is that we have a an industry of low volume car manufacturers, unlike that of any other country in the world you just i mean yeah, there are examples you know there are companies in germany certainly um that make very small numbers of lightweight sports cars but it's not an entire industry not like it is um over here and i've never really understood what it is about the uh the british psyche uh, which has caused this industry to spring up and to flourish and, and and the closest i've got i guess is because we have always you know even you know larger volume manufacturers have always been making sports cars you know you think of the of the great names that aren't around anymore um you know names like you know like austin healy um and uh, and jensen and you know and, and and plenty of others um you know riley and triumph uh, um, and marcos exactly you know so many names you know there is such a history there's such a heritage in this country of these sorts of cars i think we do them because we just always have it's just been you know since i mean you know long before the war um you know you think of those you know those pretty little pre-war mgs and that sort of thing you know things like pas and pbs and tcs that i think that's where it all sort of sprang from um and we never just and we never stopped i think we've also been helped by you know the odd bit of genius design haven't we you know you think of you know the original morgan design um be it with three or four wheels you know they're dining out on both to this very day you think of colin chapman coming up with the lotus seven um and you only need a few cars like that for a few other people to think, wow, I'd like a slice of that pie. I mean, maybe we could do something as good, if not better than that. And then suddenly you've got an industry. Um, and thank heaven for it, because, you know, I just love it. I really do. 
Um, I suspect, I mean, the, the motorsport industry in this country, which is unlike anywhere else, actually, uh, it owes a lot to the aviation industry after the, World War, after the Second World War when there were all these airfields, so a load of circuits sprung up, but also a load of engineering know-how um, and manufacturing know-how that just got applied to cars, racing cars and road cars. And also people, were, people weren't rich. They were pretty skint. And so they wanted something that was, you know, affordable but dependable. No, I think I think you make a very good point. Okay, um, so I, I I think the one that I'm most familiar with um, of all the the companies we, we're going to talk about, we'll talk about TVR. There's Morgan. There's Ariel. There are so many others. Um, I, th- I we should start off by talking about Caterham. I reckon. Um, not least because I drove one again this week and it was brilliant. <laughs> I, mean, I we, we we have blabbed on a bit about caterings on this podcast, haven't we? Because I went off and um, drove that Super Sport quite recently. But uh, I think I was talking specifically about that car um, rather than the the company generally. So what is it that does it for you about catering? Or maybe it doesn't. Do, uh, do you know what? I've sort of blown slightly hot and cold over the years, but only because on the road, I often feel vulnerable in them. Um, and so... I, I, you know, a long motorway journey. If you're overtaking a lorry or something, I just it, it that's actually quite a hateful exercise for me. Um, I I just feel so vulnerable and so exposed that low down in something so tiny that lots of people can't see. And so I, I've I have in the past found myself sort of slightly turned off by by them. However, when you drive one on circuit or on on the right kind of road, um, or even frankly around some cones on a big paddock or um, you know, tarmac apron or something. They're fantastic. And yeah, so I, I was driving one again this week for a video, a 310R. So actually a, one of the, the the less powerful models, but it was fantastic to drive. And I think it's partly because w- one of the things that really struck me the other day is that um, for x they're so linear and so predictable okay so for x amount of throttle you get x amount of slip at the rear and that equals x amount of steering correction needed to bring it back so it's it's like you're hardwired into it isn't it you're just there's there's no filter whatsoever there's literally none that you know there's no power steering um there's no driver aids no, no abs um and so everything that you do with the pedal any of the any of the pedals or with the steering wheel or the gear lever you get an a predictable and consistent response from the car um and, and so you, you just know that it's just you this machine and the road and and, and there's something I, I find that there is something what's the right word um i like knowing that if it goes wrong it can only be my fault that i've got nothing to blame because there are no safety systems i am the safety systems and therefore if the safety systems fail i fail and i just like that it's that kind of analog experience, isn't it? It's just you and the machine. Um, and, and I think what, to me, they do probably better than anything else is they make you a better driver. Um, can you imagine what driving a Caterham sloppily would feel like? It would just be the most... I mean, goodness knows it would be like for your passenger, but even for you, it would just be an absolutely hateful experience if every gear change wasn't timed as well as you could do it. Every line through every corner wasn't as neatly executed as you could make it. Every correction to the steering wasn't as you know as accurate as you could possibly make it. I mean, that's the whole point of being in the thing. 
And, and what that does is it involves you. And we've said on this podcast before that basically that's, you know, driving pleasure, you know, good handling is just an ability to involve the driver. Uh, and cars that make you want to drive well, as caterums do for me, um, are, are inherently great cars because they just involve me in the process. And it's why I, you know, the heavier the car, the more ponderous the car, the more they turn me off because they're not, you know, they're never going to be particularly accurate as a car. So why should I, as a driver, you know, bother trying to do, to do it myself? Uh, it's, yeah. Mm, <laughs> I, um, also on a slightly more prosaic level, you know, we celebrate characterful, high revving, normally aspirated engines. We celebrate crisp, communicative steering. We celebrate lightweight engineering. Um, we celebrate good gearboxes. Um, and all of those things just apply to a seven. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I mean, how many times? I mean, I'm sure you've done it. I've done it. Um, have you sat down and just sort of sketched out your ideal sports car? And basically, I design a seven every time. And and you know, <laughs> and the, and the funny thing what is is that you know it's it's more than sixty years, and you know for I still don't think you know we'll, we'll come on to aerials in a minute, and I absolutely bloody love them, but I still think given a choice. For a car like that, I'd have the engine up the other end. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Right, now let's talk about racing Caterhams briefly because we've both done it. Um, I mean, it's such a good school car, isn't it? Like an, a, an academy car, literally the Caterham Academy. But also the quicker ones, they are phenomenally fast machines. But, uh, but basically a 7, as you said, it makes you a better driver. It also makes you a better racing driver. Yeah, I haven't raced a really fast one. Um so, I mean, I've driven plenty on tracks and I know how unbelievably rapid they are. Um, but yeah, but to, to me, it's the same thing. They just make you a better driver. Um, you know, and, and I think for your point about them being good school cars, you know, I think that you could get up to, you know, a very high level of, um, you know, automotive or driving education on a caterham, you know, uh, beyond which you'd have to go to, you know, something with proper downforce before, you know, you needed to find a level that a caterham couldn't take you to. Um, and you just go up through the ranks, don't you? You start with, you know, a you know, 150 horsepower, whatever, and end up with... I mean, what's the 620S got at the moment? It's plenty, isn't it? Three, it's 310. Yeah. It's 310, yeah. Um, well, I, I actually did that, climbing the ladder of the, the caterham motorsport ladder. Um, so I did... This was a few years ago, what, 2016, I think. I did two rounds so they've got five um rungs on the ladder i couldn't do the caterham academy the the bottom one because i'd already done a bit of racing um and that's for people who have never held a license before um and then i I can't remember the name of them all but you know if if the academy is step one you've then got two three four five so i did two rounds in two uh two rounds in three or four i can't remember which and then one round in five so the whole point was to climb that ladder and try and work out what the differences between them were um and of course as you as you climb the ladder the cars get faster they get grippier but they become more serious um until at the top end you're driving this staggeringly quick thing and i think they claim that those top spec cage and race cars are the fastest non-aero racing cars you can get which i can well believe um and well, it's interesting. I mean, you, you, Tuscans still race. Um, okay, so... okay, I think we're talking new stuff, Mod, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, modern day enough. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. But what I found was that, you know, I could 
qualify on the front row and I scored a podium in uh, the second rung. Um, but then as you climb through, not only are the cars becoming faster and therefore requiring a sort of a more precise hand, also the, the, the competitors are becoming more and more experienced. They've been racing for more, you know, many more years. Um, and so it does get become harder and harder. Um, but the, you know, the basic principles of driving these cars quickly remain exactly the same. And what I figured out uh, only, well, probably far too late, is that Alton Park qualifying on a damp circuit and the funny thing is, you can be hammering around in a seven, certain that you're using every ounce of braking performance, that you're getting all of the cornering grip out of it, that you're using all the power. You can be convinced that you're going as fast as that thing will go and still be five or six seconds off the pole time. Um, it's the strangest thing. It really is the strangest thing. But then as you spend a bit more time on the circuit, in the car, you you begin to work out where you're losing time. And what I found was that a huge amount of time that I was losing was in quick corners. I was just over slowing the car. And I eventually worked out that I had to go in a gear higher, just carry that much more speed and allow the car just to slide out a little bit. Because it's almost paradoxical, but I think in those things, unless you're using all the grip and, you know, unless the car's sliding... Um, you're not using all the grip, which is a weird thing to say because you're clearly over the limit of grip. But if the car's not sliding, there's something in reserve. In reserve, And it's only by going in a gear higher and allowing the car to wash out on the exit that you're, you're using everything that it has. And that, of course, pays dividends all the way down the following straight. Um, but that's, it's just a good example of learning how to get the most out of a car. And I don't think there's any, any better car for doing it in, really, than a 7. No, I agree. No, they are they are uh, they're wonderful things. I mean, I've 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 done pretty much everything you could do with a seven. I've uh, I've I've owned a couple. I've I've raced a couple. I've crashed only one, and that was before I was a motoring journalist. Um, I've built one. I'm hoping to be shortly building another, but that's another story. Um, Interesting. So um, yeah, I just you know I you know I, I Gordon Murray says cut me and I bleed loaded. Frankly, if you cut me, I bleed catering. I just uh, you know I just absolutely love really? them. Yeah, I really mm. do. Um, they, they, they are what I want a car to be. Right, I've got one more thing to say about uh, that Alton Park experience that I had a few years ago. So in <laughs> in um, one of the races, I uh, this doesn't reflect well, does it? I On the first lap, I drove into the car in front of me coming out of the hairpin or diving into a braking zone somewhere. And so my race was over. Um, after half a lap and so I had to watch the rest of the race from a marshal's post um, and it was at Island Bend that quick left-hander going down into the hairpin um, and I could see lap after lap that the lead two cars they were scampering off away from everyone else they were sliding they were drifting four-wheel drift quite you know plain to see through that corner and nobody else was um, and that was as clear a demonstration as you could hope for of what it took to drive one of those cars quickly. Um, oh, God, it's been far too long since I've nailed one of those things around a circuit. I must put that right. Next year. Yeah. Make your 2021 ambition. I will. I will. Do you know what? I, I said that this was a good time to be talking about Cajun because I drive one, drove one this week. It's also a good time to be talking about TVR because I drove one this week as well. And it was the first I'm sorry. 90s era TVR. Oh, I've okay. First okay, V8 what was one, it? A Camara. It was a Camara. What engine did it have in it? Just the little V8, the 4-litre V8. 
four litre V8. So a, a completely sort of cooking Camaro. Actually, a very nice car. Yeah. Yeah, as simple as they as they come, as they yeah. came. And it was lovely. I, I didn't really know what to expect. That It was soaking wet, um, which made me a bit nervous, inevitably. But what I found was that cornering grip was good and consistent. Um, traction was actually really strong. Of course, they've got no systems on them whatsoever, but they do have... They've got that Blackpool traction control, haven't they? The very long throttle pedal. Yeah. That just allows uh, but they you also to... they also set them up. They always set them off very very soft at the back as well. I think I think yeah. they did it like that because they just wanted people to get really good not to sixty tires. But you know it works. It yeah. works. Um, yeah. You do, you, you, they, they always have been surprisingly good in that department. Mm, it was. I really liked driving. Actually, it was. I think the only disappointment for me is that the car I drove had the optional power steering and it seemed a shame to me because otherwise it would have been just like a classic car driving experience but with you know slightly more modern whatever reliability I I, I, I wouldn't be so sad to have the power steering I mean they were heavy old brutes without it really it would better with you think uh, probably yeah because from what I can remember it actually wasn't a bad system there was perfectly decent steering feel and um, I think you got a quicker rack with it as well. You certainly should have done. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, you do. I mean, when I, drove, I when I last drove one of those, it was only a couple of years ago. I was struck. I mean, I don't think there's another car that I've driven recently, which I tested when it was new, twenty something years ago, which felt to me like it had aged more. I mean, to me, it felt more like a sort of nineteen sixties. It felt closer to a nineteen sixties Austin Healey than it did to a modern car. Um, and I mean, I'm not saying that's even a bad thing. In many ways, I think these days it's probably quite a good thing. It, yeah, exactly. It depends what you're looking for, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it depends what you're good for. But, but I was surprised by how quickly and basically almost all regards it at age. And it felt like a properly vintage car. Um, but, you know, but, not, but not unpleasant. Um, and my point about those TVRs, which I've, I've made a few times before, is you know, they did have this reputation. We have to be very careful here, actually, because the bloke who used to be TVR's PR bloke is undoubtedly <laughs> listening to this uh, because he's a mate of ours. Um, and he's Hello, the ben. poor chap who had to ring you up every time you made any kind of comment about TVR's perhaps being not the most reliable of things and try to convince you that they were absolutely as reliable as a 911. Um, but the, <laughs> the point I was going to make is that, you know, let us say, in a totally hypothetically, they weren't put together in Blackpool quite as well as the finest uh, no. 993 of its era. Um, everything that was going to fall off that car would have long since fallen off it and probably been put back by someone who had a slightly better idea of how to do it. Which means, and the, and the thing is, is those cars are inherently very strong because they've got backbone chassis, they've got big rover engines, they have got, well, they've got Borg Warner gearboxes. I mean, it's all basically ironmongery under there. There's nothing difficult about it. Um, and so, you know, they're actually, if you get a good one, I think they're quite, and, and you don't mind the fact that it's not it's never going to handle like a Caterham or anything like that. But if you just want a nice old smoker, which looks really cool, will make a lovely noise and waft around the countryside making you feel good about life then you know i think there's an awful lot to be said for them i was surprised at how, <clears throat> how sort of languid the the camera felt i mean it's not something that you grab and really nail is it you no, don't, don't hammer it along a road you never you, was. It, you really do stroke it along yeah um but i so i've driven a couple of the straight six cars the later cars the t350 and a cigaris but both dealer cars um and not when they were new so i've you know what it's like you, well maybe you do but if i've borrowed a car from a dealer or an owner I'm, I'm just so cautious with it um but what were they like to really 
you know kick the crap out of they the moment they started putting their own engines in it the ajps the v8 and the straight six they became very different cars that languid nature that you talk about which to me was actually you know so much of the appeal of the tvr you know because you know, let's not forget that they had you know targa roofs and they had spacious cabins they always had big boots they were actually very Huge. usable cars yeah. But yeah, then you put these incredibly angry engines into them and it changed their character completely. And of course they went, you know, they were incredibly fast. Um, but I don't know. I, I'd always enjoyed relaxing in those cars. And to me, that's what they were. They were, you know, modern day Austin Healy's, if you like. Um, but they seemed to be trying to be something road else. Races. Did, road racers. And, you know, uh, and they obviously got a lot more expensive. Um, I'm trying to remember the, what was the name of the one that I did drive. There was one name. Was it the Tamora? Was that one? I think it was, uh, which I th- think was quite a cheap car. Um, it was, and, and that was actually because it wasn't quite as angry as the others. That was actually, I seem to remember quite enjoying that. Um, but no, the, the faster and angrier they got, actually, the less they appealed to me um, because they were less usable. And they still weren't, to me at least, as enjoyable as you know, a top-of-the-line Caterham or, or, or anything else. So um, it was still sad when um, it went to the wall, but I, I think I understand why. Mm. When I was 14 years old, I loved no car more than a TVR. I was fanatical about them. I just absolutely adored them. Um, I loved the way they looked. I loved that they were British. I loved that that as far as I could tell, looking at the numbers, they were supercar fast for a fraction of the money. I love that they had those crazy interiors. Um, and even now when I see one, which isn't very often, is it really? I, I sort of, I smile. Um, yeah, they're interesting things. I'd love to spend more time driving them. Um, I think if we're talking about TVR, we should just briefly discuss the the stuttering revival. Um, what, did, what do you reckon of all, do you think it's going to happen? Oh, I do so hope so. Um, I mean, the, the, the answer to your question is I, ge- I genuinely don't know. So please, nobody presume I've got some inside knowledge on this because I haven't spoken to anybody who's had anything to do with it. Well, the last person I spoke to about it was Gordon Murray when he signed the project off. Um, you know, the car is is engineered, it's done. Um, I'm only aware of one having been built. I think they announced it. Was it at the revival in 2017? And, they sh- and, and the car was there. Um... You know, there was a big thing recently. Um, Steve Cropley went and I think he went and spoke to Les Edgar, who's the head of the, who's the head of TVR, and it's all you know back on track and good to go, and they're building the factory and this, that, and the other. But you know, the the problem is, and I'd say this about any company or indeed any person. You know, you we all judge ourselves by what we feel capable of, but everybody else judges us, judges us on what we've achieved, and what they've achieved so far is one car in three years. Um, and the longer it goes on, um, you know, I believe they still have some very loyal depositors, um, which is which is great. Um, but you know, and goodness knows, no one would wish COVID on anyone, let alone a you know a startup British sports car company trying you know in the most desperate of circumstances to bring a car to market. Um, so I mean, I can't even begin to imagine how much, how difficult it must be for them. Um, but you know. <sighs> The problem I think they have is, A, I'm afraid the car is old news, um, just because it's been around in the public conscious for, for so long. Um, but also, 
you know, they still have to get over the hurdle that so many other small British small sports car companies have failed to negotiate, which is it's all very well to have a car which looks great. You may or may not think that about the TVR, but I'm not making these comments specifically to that car and which goes well on paper. It's all very well to build a prototype which does all the things that you promised it would do. It is a completely and utterly different challenge to get that car to market with a quality that the customer will wear at a price the customer can afford or will be prepared to pay. Um, And I've seen so many of these projects come and go and they always look so good. And then, you know, they come along and we all get terribly excited and they never quite make it because, you know, the quality is not right or the price is too high or some combination of the two. Um, and I understand why that is. It is an unbelievable, I, mean, I wouldn't try and do it. I mean, it's an unfeasibly difficult thing to do. Um, but, you know, TVR, of all manufacturers, because, you know, rightly or wrongly, um, you know, there are some people who say that, you know, TVRs have been unfairly represented in terms of their reliability record. But nevertheless, the reputation is out there. I don't think anybody would deny that. So this car has to be right from the get go. Um, you know, if it comes out and there are question marks over over it, then, you know, it, it's not going to work. I, I wish it all the very best because I love the name. I love the fact that it, Gordon Murray has had so much to do with it. Um, and who wouldn't want a company like that to succeed? I really, really hope it does. Um, but I, I, I'm far from convinced. You said a little while ago that um, it's great in the UK. We've got loads of low volume sports car manufacturers and we discussed where they, what their origins were. But sadly, the reality is the list of those that are now defunct far exceeds the list of those who are still around churning out cars. Um, and I guess fundamentally, it's just a unbelievably difficult business model, isn't it? Building these things, finding a margin, doing it sustainably. Um, but it can be done. Yeah, it can be done. And I think the the best example of it in recent times, it's got to be Ariel, hasn't it? 100%. 100%. Yeah, what Ariel have done is, in this regard only, is they have taken a leaf out of Caterham's book, which is, you know, Caterham has survived for as long as they have for two reasons. Um, they have a brilliant design, you know, a work of genius, and they don't make anything themselves. Everything is outsourced. So what Caterham do and what Ariel do is they assemble. So, you know, they don't presume that they're better at doing a certain thing than anybody else. They accept that they're not. So they get the best in the business to produce all their components and they all come into the factory and they get turned into cars. Um, And that, so far as I know, is the only way those sorts of operations can can thrive um if you think you're going to come in there and get to do it all yourself i think it's just la la land Mm, Um, it does seem that way yeah um but ariel you know um what they have done is is so impressive because you know not only is the car um you know amazing to drive um the quality of it I mean, I don't know, and Ariel's been around for a long time, and we all, and we motoring journalists, we all talk, and particularly if something's, you know, blown up or dropped something or whatever, you know, it goes on. I don't know anybody who's ever been let down by an Ariel. I don't know if you do. Um, and yet we thrash the asses off them. I mean, I was, uh, I was in one this week um, at Castle Coombe. 
um, and I've you know I've taken nomads up to the Sweet Lamb Rally stage and just done terrible things to them. And at the end of the day, you know, they may be absolutely filthy. Uh, you may be completely and utterly knackered and fit for nothing but bed and a bath. But you know, they're just sitting there, you know, idling away as if it literally has just been got out of the garage and. And I think, you know, um, that really, really appeals to people. Also, you know, the other thing they do, which is so clever, is they control their volumes. They've never tried to build 500 cars in a year. Um, because, you know, if you configure your factory to do that and things get a bit tough, um, then, you know, you could be in a lot of trouble very quickly. If, however, you configure your assembly facility to make a very very low volume of cars um you know two things happen um one is that um you know you will always be tapped into the hardcore of people who will always want that kind of car almost regardless and secondly your residuals will stay sky high um and so people will want them because you know and it, it is the absolute truth that if you buy yourself a new atom today and you get aerial to service it and you don't smash it to bits and don't do stupid miles in it i mean it's not quite a free car but the residuals you know the depreciation on a car like that is so small um and that is such a rarity these days in modern cars that you know the the financial downside to having such an amazing thing in your shed is absolutely tiny and you'll always be able to get out of it because there will be always be somebody who wants it same with Caterham 7s. Those things, yeah. the, the money that you sell them for after a year or two, it's, yeah. it's, it's more or less what you paid for it. It's staggering, really. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it is as close as you're going to get to a free sports car, isn't it? Yeah, and they, and they don't get greedy. I mean, I think that, you know, particularly TVR, but I also think the old Noble company, um, you know, I think the problems that they ran into was, well, I mean, either volume related or often they just try to, you know, make a bit more money by putting their prices up. And maybe they needed to do that to cover their overheads. I don't know. But, you know, both Caterham and Aero, they know what kind of cars they should be making. They know what sort of cars their customers expect. They know what their customers are prepared to pay. And so they make that. They don't try and push, push, push um, to make a bit more short term money um, and, and risk, you know, a long term loss. Okay, I reckon we can cover off one more of these low-volume British sports car manufacturers. Um, cool. And we, <laughs> we need to talk about Morgan. Yeah. So I, I, um, a friend of mine brought one over the other day. Uh, he's running one as a long-termer uh, for a few months, and he brought it over the other day. And it's one of the new ones. So new platform, isn't it? And um, new BMW engines and so on. Um, and it, it was hilarious. I... I was, you know, I presumed that after all this time with a new car, um, they'd have all those little foibles figured out. But he said, if it's raining, even with the roof up, you get wet. Is that charming or is that annoying? <laughs> I suspect it's quite annoying, isn't it? I mean, are you, yeah, would you be prepared to overlook that stuff? I, I, it, I don't it, think I would. It's not necessary. You know, if you're, I, you know, if, if you're in a caterer and it rains, you put the roof up, you don't get wet. Yeah. You know, I, I once drove a caterer from... Dartford to the south of France overnight, basically in a rainstorm the entire way, and it wasn't a particularly pleasant journey. Um, but I didn't have a drop of water on me, um, so there's no excuse for cars that leak in 2020. Um, but but okay, but okay, but the, but the question is, um, is Morgan an exception because they've never tried to be a modern car, and even when they have modern underpinnings, 
that's not what people buy into, is it? I mean, what, what, what they want, I think, is actually an old car. And they will put up with old car foibles, but not old car failings. So as long as it's mildly annoying, that's absolutely fine. But what they don't want is for it to let them down. Um, and I think that that would be terrible. Um, I, I, I've, I mean, was it a plus four or a plus six that you drove? Uh, I didn't drive actually. It was a, it was a plus four. Uh, okay, okay. So I've, I've been, I've driven them both. Um, and I mean, they're expensive. Um, you know, you could write a list as long as your arm of things that weren't right with them. Um, but I found myself feeling quite well disposed towards them because I guess because I'm an old fogey and these cars I'm afraid tend to be bought by old fogies um I kind of understand it's not the, these are not cars for me okay I do not wake up in the morning thinking god I wish I had a Morgan in the shed in the way that I think god I wish I had a Caterham in the shed uh, I've never had that thought but I, I do understand to an extent the the appeal of the looks and that slightly, well, that very retro feel they have. And, and the thing I will say about the modern breed, the breed that's just come out, is they don't, as a driver, they don't wind you up, um, or in fact drive you completely up the wall in the same way that the the old ones used to, because they were just they were just incompetent. Because you know, until quite recently, um, you know, all the old four fours and plus fours. I think they made the last one this year, actually. They had front suspension technology that dated back to the First World War, and I am not kidding. <laughs> um, you know, sliding pillar front suspension, um, and you know, is that quaint? Is that charming, or is it just hopeless? Well, I mean, I, I went and drove one actually briefly, um, having driven the new one, and, and it is just hopeless. And so, <laughs> I think, I think, I, th- I think, just don't think people who buy Morgans are particularly demanding of those cars well, also, else. they, Sorry, they wouldn't have anything else would they that's what they want no i mean i know a bloke um he's a mate of mine he's 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 really pretty well resourced um and he normally knocks about the place in the latest 911 turbo uh, and he was bought um by his missus for his birthday a sort of factory tour of morgan um, and he went along with a friend of his and they had the factory tour and the big sort of yeehaw at the end of it was they got to have a, I don't know, a 20 mile test drive in one of the um, new Morgans. And he rang me up afterwards and he went, that is without doubt the worst car I have ever driven in my entire life. And I think I I'm one? going to buy one. <laughs> there you, it's just impossible to pin down, isn't it? But it's there. There's... There's an appeal despite everything. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, you know, I think they're doing very well. I mean, when I spoke to them, um, you know, despite, and this, that was this year, and this was, I think it must have been just after lockdown ended. Um, you know, their order books were pretty full. I mean, not the sort of three plus years that they used to be, but that's a good thing because, you know, you don't want people waiting three years for the products because they just get pissed off and go and buy something else. Um, and they, 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 they seem pretty chipper. So, you know, all power to them. I, you know, I wish them all the best. They're just, they're just not really my kind of car, but that's probably says as much about me as it does about Morgan's. Right. Is it, before we end the podcast, is there anything yeah. else you want to mention? Do you want to talk about Invicta? Do you want to talk about Van Wall? Um, I mean, Invicta, Invicta uh, some will remember that Invicta, which was a grand old name from the sort of 1930s, really, came back in, oh, I don't know, uh, early part of this century. Um, and, you know, 
it was I drove it and but it was an example of how not to do it in my view because I think for me the mistake they made was they did try to do it all themselves I remember being shown around the the unit where these things were I don't know how many they built in the end but I think probably single digits um and you know they were showing me the you know the autoclave where they cured their own carbon fiber and I did this that and the other they, they basically <laughs> did the whole thing themselves and um so yeah so I suppose that's an example of of how they didn't do not, they didn't do everything themselves no not everything but 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 the they, re- the, the rear lights were off a of Passat <laughs> very good very good I did not know that thank you um yeah and uh what else should we talk I mean Jensen that was another one that had a Jensen tried to come back in the 1990s and I think they actually made a few cars I think they made about 30 or 40 cars before they succumbed to um to the inevitable and Van Wall uh all I'll say about Van Wall is there was the news last week wasn't there that they're going to make five um recreations of the cars that won the first ever constructor formula one constructor champion in 1958 uh with the cars which were driven by mainly by sterling moss and tony brooks and when i heard that van wall were going to come back i did worry that it was going to be some inappropriate use of you know a grand old name for british racing but in fact you know the company that's going to make these cars uh, hall and hall um they're as good as they get the cars will be indistinguishable from the originals um you know there really aren't any vandals out there racing at the moment and you know as you and i know perfectly well when we go to places where there are historic races there are so many recreated cars there and if they look the same and they sound the same and they drive the same um then you know as long as nobody ever tries to pass them off as something that they're not then you know i don't have a problem with it yep fair enough okay well there we go i think we should wrap that one up there um and we must come on to Lotus soon, mustn't we? I mean, there's not only the history, but everything that's going on nowadays. It's going to be such a rich topic. I think we are not far. And I'm not sure I have a reason for saying this. I just sort of feel it in my water that we're not far from a big announcement about the next car. So maybe we should just wait until we get something from them, um, which we can then use as a hook to um, tee up the next podcast. Because absolutely, I mean, Lotus is it's such an amazing subject isn't it i mean you know if if you wrote the story of lotus as a sort of um i don't know a drama people would just you know the script editor would just chuck it back at you as being too implausible um (laughs) you know up down in uh, owner after owner after owner and yet still somehow it's still there um so yeah i look forward to that one very much indeed yeah good good we will come on to it um so everybody please do remember to rate the podcast and leave us a review it really does help um and go and check out our patreon patreon.com forward slash drive nation there's a link in the description of this podcast actually and you can follow that and give us a few quid each month that'd be good wouldn't it that would be absolutely excellent yeah um (laughs) and in return we we promise that we will continue to come back every week and talk rubbish um out of your radio or your earphones or wherever you're listening to this um for the foreseeable Yeah, um, and we will be back next week. Yep, look forward to it. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. 